You are listening to Hands at Work Audio. For Word and Worship on the 5th of May 2017, George Snayman shared how Hands at Work began in the community of Luhonga in the DRC. In the history of mankind, there's never been a place where so much blood was shed. In the last 40, in the last few decades, more than 4 million people were slaughtered in that area. 4 million guys. And that is by far the majority of women and children. The week before I went there, 35, week before I went, 35 people were um, killed with machetes. 3 o'clock till 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, rebels went in and they just slaughtered people in a village not far away from our village. In fact, the very moment I was uh, with Eric in Lohonga, the community where we work, we went in, we spent the day there, and we slept with some Catholic priests at another place in a community. And the next morning when we went back, the rebels actually hit the very community where we are working. And one of our care workers, she looks after four children, uh, orphans, and she was held at gunpoint. And, and they actually wanted to kidnap the children because they make soldiers out of them. And she begged them not to. And they took everything she had except her woman dress. They took eight goats, they took even the boys' children, uh, clothing, everything. And the next morning at nine o'clock, we had a care worker day in Luhonga, and there she was participating that day. And I said to her, how can you be here? And she said, this is life. And I will not be intimidated by that. So the next morning, even though she had nothing on her name, she was there. That city has been hit twice by a volcano already. The whole city, even in the poor people, even in their homes, is razor-sharp rock as a, the, you call it lava, right? Spilled over the city. That place is so toxic with gases and diseases and things that, um, yeah, I'll, I'll share a bit about that to you now, but Goma is just in the midst of that. And, and then the deep underlying root of so much killing and pain is all connected to things like this. For you and me to have a cell phone. Because there's a, there's a mineral in your cell phone that can be found only in Goma, or mainly in Goma. And the way our Western business brothers are buying this is they are giving weapons to children and women and men to kill each other. I promise you they're doing that. I'm not telling you a movie star. I, I'm telling you first-hand experience. This is the way the West are trading with those guys because they don't want to pay tax. They don't want to do it the legal way. They put children in mines, children in open mines at night to get the cobalt out so that you and I can have an iPhone and a Samsung. And it makes it so painful when you see the pain in its rawest format and you see the brokenness of people and you see bloodshed and you speak to grandmothers. I'm telling you now, like, <laughs> I'm saying to you like a, uh, the author's New Testament, I'm sharing with you what I saw firsthand. I'm not telling you what I read. That grandmothers will tell me that even where the rebels have withdrawn into the mountains now, there was such a culture of rape 
That's the only role model that there is in that place. That the grandmothers are now raped by the very boys in their own villages when they go into the fields to go and harvest. Goma, the city of injustice, unbelievable pain. And yet, somehow, Goma never reached our news. Four million people, two volcanoes, constant killing, raping. 35 people were cut up with machetes. I'll show it to you in the press if you want to see. I tracked down a little article the week that before I got there. There's not a word in the press. Our journey in Goma started in Heathrow Terminal 5. I sat there on a Saturday morning waiting to catch a plane to wherever, I don't know. And I, Heathrow is a terrible airport, especially if you don't have money. <laughs> Those benches get very hard. And people, there are just millions of people and there's nowhere to hide and be comfortable. And so eventually I picked up a terrible English newspaper <laughs> called the Saturday Telegraph or something like that. And on page five, there was that photo with one sentence under it. A journalist recently went to, go to Goma to go and investigate what was happening and he found these two sisters walking in the bushes by themselves. They lost their parents and they had nowhere to go to. That was the total sum of it. Page five. On a Saturday morning in the Telegraph in London. And I, I looked at this and I looked at the people around me I saw businessmen and I saw people with flowers, shirt flowers on their way to some Greek island and I saw women and children and I looked at them and I looked at this and I just wept and wept. I said, God, how, how is this possible? How? How can this be that that reached page five? And I came home, this was about 2006, 2007, and Nikki was about five years old. And I said to Nikki, I showed her that photo and I said to her, what do you think? And Nikki said to me, go and fetch him. Go and fetch him. And I wish I never asked her. But I ended up, because I actually went to, to people's church, and Charles, just out of the blue, like, I mean, he threw it on me on the stage. He said, tell them anything. And I thought, what can I tell? I said, oh, we would like to go to Goma. Oh, I remember this. <laughs> I, I don't even know why those words came out of my mouth. When I said them, I wanted to, you know. And somebody in the church gave me $10,000. Right there and then. And so a few weeks later, I ended up in a plane in Kigali in Rwanda. I had nobody with me. It was me. I found a translator. I didn't know him from a bar of soap. He got in a minibus with me and we were on a trip for four hours in the mountains. I mean, if you think our taxi drivers are bad, they're actually very well behaved. <laughs> and we made it by God's grace to the border of the DRC and they told us to get out and I walked into, I literally walked into Goma. And I stayed in Tony's guest house, which is very unique. I mean, I slept on a mattress there for five minutes and I was molded, I couldn't get out of it. I was, I was, 
And I remember the first night, about two o'clock, I just heard gunshots and screaming, and there were a whole group of soldiers coming into the guest house with a lot of young girls. I would guess 14. And they just partied the whole night, shooting and drinking right next to my room. And I went out the next day into the communities with my translator. He saw what I saw. <laughs> and that night he packed his bags and he went back to Rwanda. Mm. And I was left alone. I couldn't speak the language. I didn't know what I was doing there. I just knew that Nikki told me to go and fetch them and people's church gave me money. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we started. You know, that's how God works in our lives. That's God. That's hands. That's who we are. Totally. If you think I'm brave, man, I'm not brave. I'm not. I was so scared that week. You know that the pastors, the church leaders were hunting me down. They wanted to steal my money. It felt like nobody cared about me. Except Jean de Dieu, a Catholic man who could speak maybe four words in English. And he took me everywhere. He protected me, not just against the pastors and the politicians and whatever. The day I left and I crossed the border, a group of young guys attacked me. They tried to grab my things and whatever. And he jumped in between me and them. And he fought them off. A Catholic guy I never met before. You know, by the time I got to Rwanda, where I stayed, he phoned me with his own money that night and he said, I just want to make sure you're okay. God gave me a man of peace. Most unexpected, most just out of the blue. When I dared to take that step, he was there. But I left Goma, where I spoke to the grandmothers. I literally ran away from them. Literally, when they shared their story with me, I, I walked away. And I walked up a mountain, a, a, a road, and the Lord said to me, because they told me the rebels are coming back. And I thought, okay, that's it. I mean, what the heck? And I walked away. And as I walked away, it was God spoke to me, and he said to me, what if you can tell them you're coming back? What if love head-on collides with fear? What will happen? And I knew that day that if I walk away there and I didn't do it, my, my faith was fake. My whole system of what I believe in Jesus was rubbish. It was not true. I didn't believe. If I truly believe love is stronger than fear, and I turned around and I walked back to them, and you know, it became such a prophetic thing because we stood in a church where the building was burned down and their, their husbands were executed in the church. There was blood there, no, not fresh, um, stained. And they pointed to me to the mountain. They pointed to the mountain and I said, in those mountains are the rebels and we fear that place because they're coming back. Little, little did I know that the time was going to come where God was going to say to me, go into that mountains. I mean, I could never have dreamt that that could have happened. But I left there, and I only left him with a promise. We're coming back. And guys, we did. <coughs> we did go back. And we started some work. Well, it wasn't easy. When I entered the, <laughs> when I entered the airport this time, I was so proud to pull out my yellow card. I tell you, I was like... <laughs> because my yellow card 
looked like a Christmas tree. Because when I went through the DRC last time, the southern part, I said to the guy, stamp anything. I mean, give me any vaccine that's available in the world. Of course, not really. Uh, I'll pay, but I want the stamps. And this guy went crazy. He gave me everything. And so when I went to Goma, I, I said, match me. <laughs> and a woman looked at it and she said to me, oh, there's another vaccine you need. She <laughs> said, you're crazy. It's impossible. And this woman looked at me and she was dead serious. She said to me, no, there's another vaccine you need. She said, sir, don't you know, this is Goma. People die of diseases. People die. And she just carried on. And everybody around me like stared at me. Don't you know this? <laughs> but you know, in some way, that's true. It's true. There are so many gas and diseases after the volcanoes and everything. That it is true, but it's so comical in a sense that they actually even use that. So obviously I went into the room where the doctor was. I said to her, how much? She took out a needle. I said, no, how much? She said, $30. I paid. I said, stamp. <laughs> and I walked out. <laughs> because, of course, I wouldn't allow her to inject me. So I want to just give you a few glimpses of, of Luanga because I want to tell you another story. These two kids... Thanks, Ken. These two kids... Kito and Kikuru are twins. In fact, the one on the left is actually the firstborn. But where we work in Luhonga, that mother had to choose who she think is going to survive. And she had to feed. So Kitu was the weaker one and she decided that she was going to try and let Kikuru survive. But you know, um, that was before Hans got there, right? We are fighting for Kitu's life. <laughs> and Kitu is going to make it, I believe it. But that's how desperate they are. That the mother must make choices who's going to survive. This is where I'm standing here, which is about maybe five meters away from there, is where we feed our children. We're already feeding like 20 more than we should. These kids are standing at our feeding point, many more. I just took a group of them. They're standing at our feeding point every day, like from me to Fazan, waiting to see maybe there's something left. Maybe there's some food. Life in, in Luanga is tough. The grandmothers... They leave the home very early in the morning and they go into the mountains very, very, very dangerous. And they go and try and find food. Sometimes they walk for hours to get water. I walked that road for about an hour and a half to find water. When they go, they leave all these children outside the hut and they lock that little hut. And these guys sit literally on the tree trunks everywhere. They sit outside from about 5 or 6 in the morning till about 6 or 7 at night. No food, no adult, no water, just hoping that their grandmothers will come home. Vumi was one of those kids that sat at that care point last year watching me. 
So I sat, I, I was here, all our children were eating, and Vumi sat where Charlotte was. And she just sat, and she locked eyes with me. And she just looked at me. You know, it was so tough for me because I knew, I, I, I literally could do nothing about it. Literally. I just wept. I just cried as I looked at her. And I thought maybe, at the very least, she can see. I'm not just ignoring her. But I couldn't do anything. She, and so, after about 15 minutes, she slowly got up and she, in the most, I mean, this is just a beautiful girl. But tender and thin and about, she was 12 years old, she started walking away. Oh, the stuff for me. I think it was most probably one of the toughest things I've experienced in my life. And after we fed, we started doing home visits. Now that village is not like villages we know here. Everything is banana leaves. The huts are only about this high and about the size of the table. And there will be five people sleeping in there. But then there's lots of trees and things, and then there's another one. So it's, it's tough. You, it's not a structured village. And there's just this network of footpaths. And so we started doing home visits, and we walked. And, and as I walked, crossing a footpath, there was Vumi again. I mean, the odds, guys, if you, if you know what I'm talking about, the odds that it could happen is, is unbelievable. It's just God that can make it happen. And there she crossed paths with me again. And this time I said to Eric, Eric, you guys go on. I'm, I'm going to do a holy home visit now. I'm going, to I'm going to chase this girl down. I want to know. And I followed her to her house. That was her house. And I can tell you more later more details if you want to on one-on-one. -on -one. But it, it ended up that her mother and nine of her siblings were killed in a conflict. And she was left with a drunkard of her father who's drunk 8 o'clock in the morning. I know him well now. But you know, I'm not angry with this guy. He's so broken. I think if I must lose my wife and all my kids, I'll also be a drunkard. And so, but he's totally useless. He's nowhere to be found. And he's got a woman that he brought into the house and she drinks with him. And she, she doesn't care about Vumi at all. And so I found Vumi sitting outside that hut. She hasn't eaten for three days. And she was burning up with fever. This child was super hot when I felt her. And so me and Eric took her to a clinic that day. And they immediately placed her on a drip. And they said that if she wasn't brought in that day, put on a drip, she would have died on malaria. And I remember Vumi was so serious. And no sign of emotion. And just before I left the clinic, I had an energy bar. I found the energy bar. And I bowed down, I gave Vumi the energy bar. And when I gave her the energy bar, I just saw for a moment, just that flicker of hope. Just like, who are you? I went home, that was last year, right? I went home where I stayed. And I woke up at about 2 o'clock in the morning, literally crying myself awake. Now, I mean, that doesn't happen a lot. Uh, I woke up crying and I thought, Oh, immediately Vumi was in front of me. And I thought, I'm crying for Vumi. Yeah, such a tough life and so rough. But you know, I realized I wasn't crying for Vumi. I was crying for myself. And I started looking at it. And I started, 
looking at Vumi, and the thing about Vumi is she's representing me in such an incredible way. I, I suddenly started seeing how, how my path and her path crossed. Miraculously. That, that is your path with Jesus. That's that. Why you and not the rest of your family? And all? Why? Why? Nobody want to talk about this. Why? Why that moment where your heart opened to receive Jesus? Why? And then he hunted you down. He came to your house. He found you. He took you, healed you, gave you a name. He spoke with you. And I was lying there at 2 o'clock in the morning and I just realized how privileged, how incredible my salvation is. My grace. I couldn't get over it. It was just a new level of understanding the depth of Jesus and what he did for me and how his heart was broken for me when he saw me like I saw Vumi. So Vumi came to a feeding point by the time I left and it was a great story and I went home and I was so happy. Well, about two months later, I got news. Vumi ran away from the village. My heart was so broken. I was so harsh on Eric. <laughs> Eric went back to Goma that, at that stage and I couldn't go. And I said to him, you, <coughs> you find Vumi. And you know, I found out from the, the, uh, the village guys, when Eric went there, he spent days going into the mountains trying to find Vumi and he couldn't find her. He, f he, he was so emotionally drained when he found me and he said to me, I must tell you, Vumi's gone. We can't find Vumi. And I thought, I can't accept that. There's something <laughs> missing in this picture. And so we went to Goma again, me and Eric, and, and again, of course, we ended up in Luhonga. But in the meantime, something amazing happened. When Eric went there and he couldn't find Vumi, he got hold of her drunk stepmother. <laughs> and he sat with her the whole day and he shared the love of Christ. He shared with her why we cared so much about Vumi, why she's so important. And this drunk stepmother against everything, accepted Jesus. And she didn't just accept Jesus, she became a care worker. I mean, this woman really, really became on fire for Jesus. And so when I got back there to Lohanga, and we had a, a busy with everything, in my heart, I was constantly, we were busy, and I would look at the mountains, and I would think, where's Vumi? But I didn't want to put pressure on Eric, because I knew our time was like that. And we had many, many challenges when we were in Goma. But in my heart, I was thinking, oh, Lord, please, please do something. And then the second last day we were there, the day after that woman got held at gunpoint, that morning, that stepmother came to me and said to me, I think I know where Vumi is, but it's very dangerous to go there. I said to her, who can take us? And she said to me, the chief's son. <laughs> yeah, I trust that guy. Not even as far as I can see him. But, <laughs> but I went to him. I said, can you take me up where Vumi is? He said, you don't want to go there. I said, we want to go there. I thought I'll go alone. And then Eric heard my conversation. And Eric said, I'm coming with. I said, okay. So the next morning, 6 o'clock. <laughs> it was Zawadi. 
She's our new field coordinator. You're going to hear a bit about her. Devota was a drunk stepmother that is now saved and loved Jesus. And then Eric and the chief son and me, six o'clock in the morning. We didn't ask how far it was. We, we just knew it was somewhere and people were a little bit nervous about it. And so off we went. Then we started going higher and higher up. The very mountain where people told me 10 years ago, up there, exactly that mountain, we started climbing. And I want to tell you, as we went higher up the mountain, the higher we went, the more vulnerable people we saw. It was like every few kilometers, there was another community just more vulnerable, just more vulnerable. In fact, as we walked, the chief son told me that the village that we were heading for, that chief got killed two days before. <laughs> so we were going up there, and two days before, that chief got killed. I'm, I'm not the most unfittest person, in our house at least. <laughs> but at this stage, I was nearly, my nose was nearly on the ground. And I was just going, because <sighs> we're going higher and higher, and the air obviously becomes thinner and thinner, and, and it was tough. And we got to the top of the mountain, and we went to the people, and we said, we are looking for Vumi. And they said, Bumi does live here, but she's working in the fields. And we got somebody to go and find Bumi. And we sat there for about half an hour. You can imagine how my heart was pumping. And then we found Bumi. I found Bumi. I found her. Until I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Eric was so excited. I mean, she was gone, guys. There's thousands of villages. This place is crazy. Girls like this don't survive. She hasn't got a mother. She's got nobody in this world <laughs> caring for her. How she got on top of that mountain. How she found... She was basically a slave to a little family there. But she was okay. And we found her. She couldn't believe it. She came out of the field. And she looked up and she saw me. Honestly, I, I wish I could have taken a photo of her face. She could not believe that somebody would hunt her down to that level on top of that mountain. She was running, this child was running as far as in her mind she could on this little planet. For her, this was the furthest away she could get from Luhonga. She couldn't imagine there's a place further away in this world than that village. And we found her. And we said to her, we care about you. And I sat with her and we started talking. And she agreed with us that she'll go down with us to Luonga again. We said to her, we'll bring you back if you want to come back, but we just want to spend the day with you. We want you to have a good meal. And, and so in the meantime, now you must imagine, she met her stepmother for the first time since she got saved. So she was very suspicious. She said, no, she's just like that because you're here. And, you know? So it was very tough. We realized this was not going to just be a rollover. But she agreed to go down to, Lu to Luonga with us. And so we went down. And we went down to the village to go and take her back to her house and to feed her and to talk a bit about with her. 
You know, Dan gave me a, a part of this scripture while I was in Goma, little did he know. Just listen to this. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that the angels in heaven always see there the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go and look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he's happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. I want to tell you guys something. You must hear me carefully now. You better not lose one of our children. I'm warning you. You better not lose one. You better fight for them. And I'm not saying it sitting behind the desk. I'm saying I'll do whatever it takes. You challenge me on that. But I expect the same from you. You dare not lose our children. They're worth fighting for. This is our pride. This is our crown. This is our gospel. This is what we believe. We lose one. We lose one. And we disqualify the gospel. But Jesus said it's not true. We cannot lose one. And it struck me so deeply. You know, I was so, that day, as I stood with her, and I considered, you can imagine Luhonga, that hasn't seen her now for three months, a village. Yes, he comes back. They couldn't believe it. But you know, when I took her to her house, and we sat there, and this child is so mature, she's gone through so much pain. She just said to me, I'm going to have to go back to that place up the mountains. And she's, she's basically kept there as a slave. She, she gets a place to sleep, she gets food, but she must work, she must look after the kids at night, you know. And this is what she said to me. She said to me, the pain in this house is just too much for me. Too much pain. I will never cope here. Even if my stepmom is really a new person. Just too much pain here. <coughs> oh, I was so despondent. I... I, I, I I just felt so blown over. So yes, we found her. And so that night she said she'll sleep with her stepmom and then the next day she'll go back. And it's with that heart that I went back to go and stay in my little room with Eric and every night we'll sit around the fire and we will talk for many hours. And here we sat that night with heavy hearts saying, Father, if it's your will, we'll embrace it. But we will fight for this child. We will not give up. In that scripture that we read, we twice read, my father, Jesus said, my father, and then he said, your father. He is truly, he truly is the father of the fatherless. So Vumi said to me, it just hurt too much. And that night, I said to Eric, that song, You're a Good, Good Father, it was just going in me. And it was such a conflict, you know. I truly, truly believe God is a good God. I know that. And I know the world is broken. We broke it and we blame Him. I know that. 
It's head knowledge. But that night I had to make it in my heart. And to understand that I'm probably going to leave Goma, fly over the mountain and know Rumi is, is back in that place. And there was nothing I could do about it. The same like the first day I met her, I saw her, there was nothing I could do about it. Well, let me just tell you now, this is our service center team in, Go in Goma now. <coughs> There's a wadi. This is Pestro and this is Mary Leontine. But what I didn't know, as we left that village, <coughs> I said to Zawadi, why don't you and Vumi walk together and I will walk with Eric in front and then you just input as much as you can. Because this Zawadi can walk on water. I mean, she loves children like you've never seen. And so Zawadi walked with Vumi at the back and at one stage I looked back I saw they were holding hands but I made nothing of it 6 o'clock the next morning my last day in Goma 2 o'clock I fly out 6 o'clock that morning I got a phone call from Luanga and Joseph our teacher who's teaching our community schools on the phone and he said Vumi wants to talk to you now it goes Joseph, Vumi, Joseph, Joseph, Eric, Eric, me. And she said to me, I want to come to Goma. Now Goma is a city, Longa is where she stays. I said, why do you want to come here? She said, I want to come and live with Sawadi. She's going to be my new mother. You could have hit me over with a feather, right? <gasps> I phoned Sawadi. I said, I don't want to put anything. I mean, I'm just telling. She said, no, I knew. Me and my husband prayed all night. She said, we knew. We knew that was what God was doing. When you told me, walk with Vumi, the moment you told me, God said, this is your daughter. The day. <laughs> you know, <coughs> the day I flew out of coma. Vumi was in a family. You know, <coughs> if I'm emotional now, it's not just about Vumi. It's about you. It's about you hearing this and going out and just live a mediocre life again. Yeah, we work for hands. Yeah, we do it. But don't, don't, surely God doesn't expect me. You know, surely I can't trust for that. I can't do that. I can't. George, you don't know how much pain I have. You don't know. Listen, man, your pain is nothing. Go and talk to Vumi. She'll talk to you about pain. I talk to Vumi now every week, I find out. I've heard Vumi laugh for the first time in her life now that she's in a family. So in, our, in Psalm 68, verse 5, we all know it so well. The father of the fatherless. But Psalm 68, verse 6. <laughs> God sets the lonely in families. Guys, this is our God. This is our Father. Vumi's story is busy changing communities in the Congo. Luhonga can never be the same again. Can Vumi's story change you? The way you commit, the way you live. 
the way you push yourself further than your comfort zone. Yeah, so I <coughs> end with this. Like Vumi, I can tell you, I can say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And I'm part of a family. I'm a son of Jesus. I'm a son of my father. And that compels me to find the Vumis and to find homes for them. Because this is who our Father is. He is a good, good God. Thank you for joining us. www.handsatwork.org